Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Chapter 10. Mayhem at the Ministry. Mr. Weasley woke them up after only a few hours sleep. He used magic to pack up the tents, and they left the campsite as quickly as possible, passing Mr. Roberts at the door of his cottage. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Turkile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper, you sound extra sexy today. Yeah, I've come down with a horrible, horrible cold. It's been coming all week, and now I'm, like, wrapped up in three extra layers. Can you still see me through the fog? I can. You better feel better before we go to PodCon. I'll take a lot of medicine and rest up. Yeah, lots of vitamin C. The other thing is, Vanessa, we've been hearing from more and more listeners who want to start their own reading group or who already have. People getting together to do Lectio together, to talk about the themes, talk about the show. And we're so excited to see that. And we want to help other listeners find these groups. So if you are running one or you're thinking of hosting one, go to harrypottersacredtext.com slash group and just fill out the little Google form there, which will ask you where you meet, if it's open to visitors, so that other people could join you in your local area. We'd love to see these groups grow. So Casper, my immediate family, the five of us, are secular Jews, but much of my extended family is actually quite Orthodox. And there is a practice in the Orthodox community called Shomer Nagia. And the idea is that once you're an adult, so once you're 12 as a woman or 13 as a man, you don't touch anyone of the opposite sex besides your family. You wait until marriage, and then your experience with your husband or wife is that much more profound because you don't touch anybody else. And people who are Shomer Nagia often get married at 18 or 19. I, growing up just outside of this community, but seeing it firsthand, was always pretty judgmental about it, especially because my cousin Becca and I grew up quite close, and she and I are the same age, and I grew up being able to, like, hug my friends, and Becca never could. So she got married at 27. And again, that sounds, like, relatively young to many of us, but 27 within this community is ancient to get married. And I just can't imagine, you know, at 27, having never been able to, like, hug certain friends or kissed anybody. And so I was at her wedding, and I was thinking about all of this, and it was a really beautiful wedding. But, you know, I was just carrying that skepticism with me. 
And so we sit down to the wedding, and Jewish wedding ceremonies are really interesting because you actually get married very early in the ceremony. And then the rest of the wedding are rituals and blessings. There are seven blessings that are given called Sheva Bruchot, which means seven blessings, and blessings over the wine. And, you know, there are a lot of rituals after you're actually married. So I was sitting there with my parents watching this wedding, and as soon as Becca and her husband got married, they just immediately leaned into each other and held hands. And then for the rest of the ceremony, they were just, I mean, you could see the love and excitement between the two of them. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the place. I mean, it was just so beautiful and moving to watch. And it occurred to me that this promise that Becca had made that I always thought was a promise only with sacrifices did have this beautiful element associated with it. By having discipline in her life like that, she gets to have this incredible spiritual experience with her husband that I can only imagine. And I think that I often only see the sacrifices associated with something like a strict promise and rarely see the upsides. And I've been doing that in my analysis of these last few chapters with Mrs. Weasley, only seeing the downside of sort of promising to be a good mom and love her children and only seeing the chores associated with it and the yelling associated with it. Whereas in this chapter, you see the upside of that promise. You see her laughing with her children and laughing at herself. And so I think that both are important, right, to acknowledge the sacrifice associated with a promise. But I think it's also important to celebrate the upsides of that kind of discipline. So I'm excited to talk to you about that today. Wow, Vanessa, I hadn't heard of that tradition. And I absolutely resonate with the kind of hesitation about that. And at the same time, I can imagine just in that moment, that sudden physical touch with many, many layers of meaning just being witnessed in public by everyone in such a beautiful moment. That's wonderful. Vanessa, it's time for our 30-second recap, and I believe I get to go first this time. Oh, I love that you've turned it into I get to go first. (laughs) On your mark, get set. Okay, so Arthur, well, everyone comes back from um, the, not the Triwizard Tournament, from the Quidditch World Cup. And Molly's just so relieved that she's there because we learned about the clock and it's moving. And um, Harry's like, has anything arrived in the post? And she's like, no. And Hermione and Ron are like, why? And it's like, serious. And then um, the boys play Quidditch for a while outside. And Percy and Arthur Weasley go back to the ministry like a ton. And Rita Skeet has written this horrible article. And Percy's like, oh, I'll give my report in person. Um, And Arthur's like, oh, I got myself into this mess because I made this comment outside the woods and that's all that happens that's all that happens from percy's point of view (laughs) okay are you ready (laughs) yes all right here we go three two one go so mrs weasley was very worried because somehow the newspaper came before i don't understand why she was up whatever and um she's like friend george i'm so sorry and harry tells ron and hermione that his scar hurt and that he had a dream and but he doesn't tell them that voldemort was going to kill him in the dream and they talk about why hedwig hasn't come back with sirius's letter and they're all getting ready to go on the hogwarts express they're like polishing things ron gets hand-me-down robes which makes him really sad and Ginny is using spello tape to Spello tape her hand-me-downs. I thought that was such a poignant little moment. I'd not noticed it before. She's there repairing a textbook. Yeah, and it's like this little hearth moment. It's very cute. 
So, Casper, where did you see the theme of promises in this week's chapter? You know, this was another chapter where I was like, hmm, I'm not sure where we're going to see promises. And then when you read it, it's everywhere. One of the most interesting places that it showed up for me was in Arthur Weasley feeling compelled to go into the ministry office, even when it wasn't his department, who was really responsible for kind of dealing with the implications of the dark mark showing up at the Quidditch World Cup. Of course, he was perhaps implicated in making this comment as he exited the woods and saying no one is hurt, you know, they're looking for who's done it. But I feel like he has a sense of responsibility beyond just his role, his function in the ministry organizational chart. And it reminded me of just the way in which there are kind of unverbalized promises, like commitments that we've made to other people or to institutions or to our work that compel us to show up for one another. You know, I think with Arthur, he's going in early in the morning. He's coming out late at night. Percy, of course, is doing the same. I don't know if he's really useful or if he's just walking around with his Coltrane's report getting in the way. But Arthur, no doubt, is actually of real benefit and added value to the broader team. And uh, yeah, it just made me think about the implicit promises that we make when we have a project together or that we have in relationships. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I find in those moments, it's often a promise to myself that I'm trying to keep. Of I want to be the kind of person who does this. And often I'm motivated by something quite selfish, which is I wouldn't want Arthur to not show up for me, so I'll show up for Arthur. This is super interesting because one of the things I really respect about you is the way that you do show up. Like you are one of the most considerate and caring friends and really thoughtful with gifts and, you know, really make an effort. And I always see that. And I always think that I'm the selfish one because I'm much more interested in like what are other people going to think of me rather than like my own sense of self as you were just describing. Oh, no, it's entirely selfish of me. It's also, if I can't keep promises to myself, then who am I? And let's be clear. I don't keep promises to myself, like, regarding chocolate or the gym. Right. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I know that there are going to be times where I have to flake on someone. I just recently had to flake on a trip with my good friend Julia. So I feel like I have to pay forward as many chips as I can so that when I do have to flake, it's like, well, Vanessa's still somebody who I can count on, right? I don't want Julia to never buy a flight with me again because I'm a person who flakes. So I feel like I have to follow through whenever I can, aware of the fact that there are going to be times when I can't follow through. Well, I think that's really interesting because it's making me think about Arthur differently because this is not the first terrorist scare that he has lived through. I mean, he lived through the previous war between Voldemort's forces and the Order of the Phoenix. And so I think his commitment and the the promise that he's made and the, the reason why he's showing up at the ministry in these days, it's kind of like what you're saying, like there's a history of a relationship that's already in place and a context of the mutual commitments because he knows that he needs people to have his back and therefore he's having other people's backs in different departments of the ministry. Like I just imagine if Arthur didn't show up now, that would have such big implications for the rest of the story. You know, I think about Bill and Fleur's wedding and the way in which the Order shows up to help, you know, in this dire moment of need where all sorts of loved ones for the Weasleys are in real danger. Like, 
people wouldn't have shown up then if he doesn't show up here. Right. Kingsley Shacklebolt later is like, remember when Arthur was staying late to help me even though I'm the one who works in security? Those things pay forward in ways that we can't anticipate. So, yeah, I'm only nice to people because I'm worried that (laughs) I'm going to get cancer and I want you all to show up for me. I'll bring a casserole. Thank you. Vegetarian. Yeah. How about you, Vanessa? Where did you see this theme of promises show up? So I was really interested that this is the first time in reading the books that I think Rita Skeeter is keeping her promise to the world to be a good journalist and to hold the ministry's feet to the fire. I know that later we find out that she has a lot of very unethical ways that she goes about her journalism, and those are wrong. But within the context of this chapter, the ministry is not being honest about what happened. They aren't telling people about Winky, and they're definitely not telling anybody about Bertha Jorkins. And I think it's good that Rita is going to announce to the world that Bertha Jorkins is missing. If she had done that earlier, then people would have been out there looking for Bertha earlier. Right now, in the context of the press being under fire from our government, I think Rita should be commended for keeping her promise to the public for holding the ministry accountable. Okay, yes. And I feel like she is not only putting the ministry's feet to the flames, but she is fanning some fake news flames also with her note that there's a rumor about multiple bodies being found in the woods. She has not found two or more sources who can confirm that's true. We don't know whether or not she has two or more sources about a rumor. She calls it a rumor. I know that Percy or Arthur says, like, she's starting the rumor, but Percy and Arthur have something to lose by these reports. We're getting this all from the Weasleys' point of view. And I have no doubt that Rita's really annoying for Percy and Arthur and for everyone at the ministry. But I have no problem with journalists being annoying to our politicians. That is part of our accountability. Well, so this is where I think the theme of promises helps us. I completely agree that Rita is maintaining her promise to keep power in check and to point at discrepancies between, you know, official statements and what we're learning what's really happened. The promise that she's breaking is to her readers in terms of checking the authenticity of facts and even rumors that she's suggesting in her reporting. You know, if she was doing her job correctly as a journalist, she would at least offer a counter narrative to that. Or she would say there were unconfirmed rumors or questions are being asked about, you know, there's, there's ways of doing that differently. I completely agree. We don't get to see a snippet of the article, but she should be saying something along the lines of it's a completely unconfirmed rumor, but, you know, it's possible and whatever. And certainly the ministry is not being totally honest with us. But I just think that she's also maintaining a certain level of promise to the readers by pushing the ministry on the Bertha Jorkins thing. I just like finally Bertha Jorkins is going to be looked for. I do think that, yes, Rita is breaking her promise to her readers, but tied up with that implicitly is that also the government is breaking its promise to its constituents. And so you're going to have this insidious dishonesty because there's no trust. I think what's really interesting about the point you made about trust is that the promises of our institutions, whether it's the media or whether it's government, trust is being eroded so quickly. I mean, levels of confidence in in Congress in the US and in Parliament in the UK and elsewhere, I'm sure, is very similar. It feels like the promise that we made between constituents and a government, between listeners or readers and media outlets, it's being eroded. And 
Like, how do we rebuild that promise? Well, it's making me wonder in the context of this book if it can be built back up person by person, right? Because what if one person at the ministry gave an unnamed source interview to Rita and was like, look, this woman named Bertha Jorkins is missing. Can you please look into it? Because nobody here is. And it's because people have more loyalty to the institutions than they have to one another. And everybody keeps saying Bagman isn't looking for Bertha Jorkins. How is that? A sufficient answer. This isn't like a departmental error. Somebody is missing and nobody is reporting it to law officials. Nobody like or should be looking for her. So I think that both in real life and in the context of this book, it's that people feel more loyalty to themselves and to their institutions than they feel to one another. And I think that the moments in which people prioritize one another in the books and in life over loyalty to their own jobs or when progress moves forward. You know, what's so interesting, Vanessa, is that I think this really relates back to our earlier point about why Arthur is showing up early and staying late at the office. I think it's really about the individual relationships that he has, much more so than the institutional loyalty. Because once the institution falls to the Death Eaters, Arthur stays loyal to the core mission of what the ministry is supposed to be there for with the people he trusts and is committed to. And I I guess that's how we should all be with institutions, is when an institution is loyal to its core mission, if it has integrity in what it was set up to do and it's serving its constituents or it's accurately reporting facts to its readers, that's when you can serve the institution, but always with this bigger kind of relational piece there. I guess this is raising the question that we keep coming back to in this podcast is, you know, when do you buck authority and when do you stay in line? And, you know, Arthur Weasley is really having to figure that out right now because he knows that Bertha is missing and he hasn't thrown a stink bomb. You know, he hasn't been an anonymous source going to the press. And maybe he's incorrect not to have done that. A really funny moment on this point to me is when Arthur is reading The Daily Prophet, he says, oh, look, I'm quoted. And Molly's response is, your name is there? If I would have seen your name, then I would have known that everything was okay and that you weren't dead, which implies that she did not believe Arthur because Arthur made the statement in The Daily Prophet that nobody was injured. And so she wasn't believing the statement that it turns out her own husband was making Uh and instead thinks that the ministry might have made a false statement and that Rita might have been right. That is fascinating. Right? She, with insider knowledge, is like, the ministry doesn't always keep its promises. It makes false statements. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. 
Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. One of the places that the theme of promises also showed up for me was that Harry has written to Sirius a couple of days ago. And there's this kind of norm of if you send an email or send a postcard or some sort of letter that you expect an answer. And it's so interesting to me. Harry didn't grow up writing letters to anyone. He hasn't really ever had a pen pal, as it were. I mean, unless he secretly did a French exchange when he was seven. But I don't think that's true. But it's amazing that there's that level of relational commitment, that sense of, you know, if I write to you, you will promise to write back even without that being spoken already at this stage. Well, I feel like maybe serious implied the promise by sending such a thoughtful letter, you know, um, on to the Hogwarts Express, being like, and then with this attention to detail of like, here's your permission slip and sending Pigwidgeon to Ron. So there's already through this, you know, wonderful behavior early on, Harry feels as though there's a promise being made by Sirius that he will always respond responsibly. Which I think gets to a larger point about sort of personality. My parents always gave us the advice sort of on the theme of weddings that you want to marry someone based on their temperament, that anything else about a person doesn't matter, but their like overall personality is a sort of promise, right? You don't know how people are going to respond in stressful situations. But what's so interesting is that Harry guessed how Ron and Hermione would respond. And after three years of friendship, they've never explicitly said, like, I promise to respond in X, Y, and Z way. But their personalities are a sort of promise for how they're going to respond so exactly that Harry can anticipate their responses without even speaking to them. This point is so true, Vanessa. Not only only with partners or friends, but also with family members. You know, we see it when Arthur says, Bill, pick up that paper. I want to see what it says. There's a little bit of communication of authority in this moment, father to son, even though Bill is a grown man. For me, it also illustrated the ways in which families can shift and that reactions also shift when people die or new people are born into a family. Like, you live into a different role. My sister had a baby over the summer, and so now I'm an uncle. And my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago, so I, I have no longer any living grandparents. And so we all kind of moved up in terms of the family structure. You know, my parents and our grandparents, and I'm in the kind of adult generation. I'm no longer the child because there's a new generation that's been born. And I feel like the promise of our reactions are actually going to shift a little bit as these roles shift. And so, you know, Harry is completely right in expecting how Hermione and Ron are going to react at this point. They're still young, they're in school, but as their relationships shift and as their roles shift, I think that promise is also going to shift. Yeah, and I think that we see a little bit of that, you know, when they arrive at the Quidditch World Cup, Mr. Weasley is like, we will not put up the tent with magic. But once a tense situation has happened, he cleans up with magic. He's like, you know, that rule no longer matters. And so our promises always are shifting depending on the situation. And I think that that's right and how it should be and done elegantly and done with thought. It's it can be a really beautiful thing that it's not breaking a promise. It's saying there's a higher promise. My promise is to Molly to get us home as quickly as possible so she doesn't worry. And that is more important than my promise to not use magic, right? It's saying that there's a hierarchy of promises. Our spiritual practice this week is Chavruta, and I believe that you have a question to which you must also have an answer. Yes. So my question is, 
why are Fred and George working on their new Weasley's visiting visas? The Hungarian shop. <laughs> yeah. Order form in front of Molly. They are leaving the following day for Hogwarts. They could work on this on the train. They can work on this in their room. But instead, you know, Ginny is on the floor binding her book. Harry is waxing his broom. Everybody is down there together. But Fred and George are doing something that is expressly forbidden right in front of their mother. And the answer that I have come up with, but I am sure you will come up with a better one, is that they have two conflicting goals with this night. One is to get the order forms ready so that they can immediately start selling things on the Hogwarts Express. And the other is that they want to spend time with their mom and their family before they leave. They've just had this sort of, you know, scary experience and they actually want to hang out with their mom. And so they're just dumb enough that they think they can pull this off, which they do through joking. But it still just seems so risky and idiotic right after she's taken their entire stock away from them to be doing this right in front of her. I hadn't really even noticed this discrepancy in the story. That is striking. And I do think you're right with your first half of the answer. You know, being on the Hogwarts Express is like the most captive audience (laughs) Right? Like, they, they, this is the best direct sale opportunity they're going to have all year. Yeah. Access to all the houses, not just Gryffindors. There's no teachers on the train. Right. Like, this is prime selling material. Or at least making the orders, which they can then fulfill later. So I'm convinced by that first answer alone. But why not do it up in their bedroom? I wonder if part of them wants to get caught. As someone who doesn't want to get caught when I do sketchy things, why would you want to get caught? You know what it is? I think this is it. It's not that they want to get caught. It's that they want Molly's approval. And it's, you know, they're hoping, I think, perhaps, maybe subconsciously, to start a conversation again, knowing that this time she's less angry. You know, she she kind of lets them get away with it, as you say. But she doesn't ask the question, and it doesn't enable a conversation about why they're wanting to do this. Yes, they like fun, but there's a bigger dream that they have with this joke shop. I wonder if they actually get what they want out of this because they don't deny what they're doing. That's right. They just say, oh, mom, like, how would you feel if something happened to us tomorrow and the last thing you did was accuse us? And she laughs. Right? She does. This might actually effectively start the approval process. That's right. She's not shutting them down again and then not lying. I mean, they call it a baseless accusation, which I don't think it is. I think that it is a completely valid accusation that she's making. So they do lie or at least misdirect. This is like the ministry being like, that Rita Skeeter is all fake news. And it's like, actually, no, it's totally true. Right. It's like 95% of it is true. (laughs) But no, I love that idea that actually what they're doing is brilliant, right? They're doing it in front of her. And it actually gets to exactly what we were talking about with the ministry. They're building trust. Last time, part of what upset her so much is that they were in their room, they were testing things, and now they're just doing it in front of her. It's actually relationship building that they are doing. And I agree with you that it's on a subconscious level, but I wonder if this is actually a really good thing for them. She's now watching them do it. She's watching how hard they're working. She's sort of in on it. This is super fascinating. Because it's it's a moment of integration, as you say, something that was hidden and in the dark and externalized and away from the relationship is being brought in in a way that's safe. 
It reminds me of this quote from Richard Rohr, which I read recently, which I love, about wisdom. And it goes like this. Wisdom is not the gathering of more facts and information, as if that would eventually coalesce into truth. Wisdom is a way of seeing and knowing the same old 10,000 things, but in a new way. It's not about knowing more, but knowing with more of you. Which I just think is so interesting, because... Yes, she was suspicious of what was going on, but it feels like Molly is is knowing with more of herself now. The fact that she had that moment where she thought the last thing she'd ever say to her children was shouting at them about their OWLs. Like, that experience is now integrated in how she's reacting to seeing them build this business. And she's like, okay, they're not taking the route that I want them to take, but they're happy. They're doing something that brings them alive. Or at minimum, they're leaving for school tomorrow and I'm not going to have the last thing I do with them be a fight. I don't want to repeat the same mistake. Yeah. Like there's more of her that knows about the whole thing. And it's at least they're spending time with me. She doesn't want to send them up to their room. She wants them in the room too, Totally. Even though everybody is bickering. I don't know about you, but because I spend so little time with my family, every once in a while, even when we're bickering and it's sort of nasty, I'll still just sort of get a smile on my face of like, it's so nice to be bickering with you. (laughs) Like, this is who I know and love. Right. Yeah. So it's like, even though they're doing something stupid and even though Ron is sulking about his robe, it's a familiar sort of like lovely familial sort of whining. I love it. Yes. This voicemail is from Krista Swartz, who had an insight that we totally missed and a lot of you didn't. So thanks to everyone who sent in a point like this. Hi, Vanessa, Casper and Ariana. This is Krista from Los Angeles. I'm calling about the most recent episode, The Dark Mark. And I have a different answer for Casper's Havruta question about why Hermione references the book from where she got whatever piece of information she's sharing. And what really struck me was that it's about being believed. Hermione always says where she got her information. And yeah, it does help us solidify that it's truth, but why is it that we need the source to believe that it's true? Oftentimes in my professional life and even in my personal life, when I'm sharing a piece of information, I'm armed, I'm ready with the source, I'm ready to cite it. And I teach my students that that's a valuable skill. But I think there's also something to not being believed, to having a position in society where I'm told that my ideas aren't good enough or aren't strong enough, that my experiences aren't enough to count as fact or count as real. And so, of course, Hermione, the girl in a little trio of friends and one of a handful of powerful female characters that we witness in this book, she has already learned that she needs to be prepared to cite her sources, that sadly, her knowledge on its own is not good enough, but it needs to be backed up by somebody else. I really hope this isn't true. I hope that it actually is more the case that she's speaking truth to minister to the world. Um, But there is always the chance that in this way, as in many others, Hermione is just like the rest of us. Thanks a lot for the podcast and everything you guys do. Uh, I'm actually starting a club at my school that is going to do exactly this, um, but with seventh and eighth graders. And I'm really excited to see what they bring. So thanks for the inspiration. See you later. Bye. 
Krista, thank you so much for that voicemail. I actually had dinner with one of my best friends last night, and she is an amazing Cuban-American lawyer, and she was astounded that we missed this intersectional point of Hermione (laughs) both being muggle-born and being a woman and therefore feeling doubly like her identity is at stake and that she has to be giving sources to prove that she's right. I just also think that that is in itself a sort of ministry and advocacy because you are pushing forward the agenda that, look, just because I'm whatever race, whatever gender, whatever it is, I really know my stuff. And it's unfortunate that that gets borne onto individuals' bodies, but it's a form of advocacy. But I think you're absolutely right that we missed this, and we're really grateful that you all helped point it out. Vanessa, it's time for our blessing. Who are you blessing this week? I would like to bless Ginny, who is sitting on the floor retaping up that book while Ron complains about having to get hand-me-downs. I feel like Ginny probably gets the most hand-me-downs as the youngest. I'm sure that it's more complicated because she's the only girl, so she doesn't get, you know, clothes hand-me-downs. Maybe she does. Maybe she does, but... Ginny is just sitting there taping up her book, seemingly not complaining at all, whereas Ron is like constantly sulking about hand-me-downs. And I understand that it's not ideal, especially in the face of Harry, who gets to have everything new. But I just would appreciate a little appreciation from Ron about being a part of this big family and having all of the blessings that being a part of the Weasley family entails, rather than always just focusing on the fact that he never gets anything new. As someone who also grew up with hand-me-downs, I would just like to say that they are an opportunity for feeling grateful that you have a community of people to give you things and that I would like to bless Ginny for having the right perspective on sitting there and taping up her book and knowing that a taped up book is still going to teach you everything you need to know. It doesn't need to be new in order for it to serve its purpose. Who would you like to bless, Casper? My blessing is for Hedwig. She is en route. She's flying far. She's traveling. She's got a mission. And traveling can be real difficult sometimes. You're outside of your normal environment. You don't have your home comforts. You're having to deal with new situations. And so for anyone who's just made a big trip or is about to make a big trip, this blessing is for you to have safe travels and arrive happily home. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. I read them yesterday, and it made me very weepy. They're so lovely. You can also send us a voicemail at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. This episode is produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week's voicemail was thanks to Krista Schwartz. Next week, we'll be reading the Hogwarts Express through the theme of play. Our social media manager is Harshi Hedegay, and we would like to thank, as always, Rebecca and Charlie Ludley and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll hopefully see some of you at PodCon in two days. And we love you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Gem Factory. Uh, I'm sitting here wrapped up in like three layers to keep my little 
this makes no sense. Uh, <laughs> to keep my little chest warm. <laughs> I sound like Miss Ambridge. <laughs> Tiny Tim. Oh, no. He doesn't survive. <laughs> Spoiler alert. And neither shall you. <laughs> All of us will die. It is true. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 